Hey guys, welcome to the MC Anime Podcast. We cover anime, geek culture, Japanese aesthetics, and Asian studies. We are a multi fandom podcast, and you can expect to hear topics in your favorite hobby or fandom activity potentially. You can find MC Anime on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Also, please check out mcanimepodcast.com, our website. Furthermore, stay tuned in for another episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of MC Anime. MC here, and we have a special guest with us today. Danielle, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So tell us, uh, tell them a little about yourself, what you do, and all that jazz. Uh, my name is Danielle M. Orsino. I am a fantasy author. I am author of the Birth of the Face series. I'm a martial artist, cosplayer, and all-around pop culture geek. Pop culture geek. All right. So, what can I find you? They want. They're interested. You can find me on Instagram at Birth of the Fae underscore novel, and that's usually the best place to reach me. All right. Well, so do do. Thank you for Daniel for introducing yourself. Today's episode is going to be cosplayer, author, and model. We're going to talk about those three roles, how it applies to Danielle, and actually how it actually happened. So. What talk about first alphabetical cosplayer? What was that like applied in your life? I was cosplaying really before there was cosplay, like before I knew what it was necessarily. I was running around. The first time I really made a costume and took it out was actually at one of my karate tests, one of my Taekwondo tests. I made a little, uh, Deborah Winger Wonder Girl costume, and it was horrible. But I wore it under my uh, my dobok or my green belt test because we had to break boards for the first time, and I was really super nervous because uh, the head of our organization was coming down to judge, and he really didn't like me at all, and I knew it. So I got nervous, and I made my little costume. It was just a red tank top. And I put another blue one, kind of sewed it together, so it would give that look like she wore on the Linda Carter show. And then took sequin stars, sewed it on, and I wore that underneath with some, I think I found like gold elastic ribbon from Christmas. And I put it on the side, my little, you know, last little truth. Put it on the side and wore all that. I had bracelets, the whole thing, and I wore it underneath my uniform. Little did I know that was cosplay. I had no idea. But I wore that to give myself a little kick, just to help me with my confidence. My instructor caught me. He he could see, because we were supposed to wear just all white. We couldn't have any any color. And when I moved, he saw the red. And he called me up to the judge's table, and he's like, come here. And he's like, what's that? And he, you know, I opened it up a little bit, and he's like, seriously, what is it? And I, I whispered what it was, and he was like, Wonder Girl and I'm like well technically her name was Drusilla and that was just for the show and I went into this long rant about Donna Troy versus Wonder Girl and he was like stop stop and he's like is it really helping you and I'm like yeah and he's like all right fine fine just and he just let it go but that was the first time I really cosplayed outside of dressing up from Halloween and all that stuff and then eventually found the cosplay community went to the Javits Center 
went to Comic-Con and started dressing up and, and it all kind of followed from there. Oh, so you were trying to do the white costume of Supergirl. Uh, no, I did. I actually, uh, on in in the Linda Carter series, Deborah Winger was Wonder Girl. Mm-hmm. And it's a red and white, uh, red and blue outfit that kind of looked like that. And I, I wore under, I wore the whole thing underneath my white uniform. So when I moved, he caught the flash of the red and was like, you're supposed to be in all white. What is, because you just would wear a white tank top. So he caught it and he was like, come here. And I was just wearing it underneath my uniform just to give me a little bit of confidence because I was breaking boards. I was doing all this extra stuff. And the head of our organization, like I said, hated my guts, made no bones about it. He let everybody know how much he disliked me, was judging me for the first time. And I was so nervous to go in front of him that I just wanted, I wanted a little Wonder Woman, you know? So I, I did that because I couldn't wear like a strapless bustier, you know, I, I couldn't move. So I did this because she had more of a tank top style. So I thought that would be better. And I wore that and then I got caught, but my instructor was cool about it. And he was like, fine, whatever. I'm not going to take points off. Like I'm going to let this go. And uh, then I kind of found out more about the Javits Center and New York Comic Con, people dressing up. And then it evolves from there. And I started going. And then I, I went, the first time I went is, uh, I went as Yvonne Craig's Batgirl. And then it just kind of, like I said, it evolved, but okay. it was a lot of fun. So for, to feel empowerment, to give you a boost of confidence to now, how is that transition like? Uh, it's kind of funny. I still, to this day, even at, well after that, I I had really nice silver Wonder Woman bracelets made, and after that, I would wear them when I was nursing. When I was going to nursing school and I could, like before a big exam, I would wear my Wonder Woman bracelets just to give me a little bit of, you know, that empowerment, that confident boost. I would still, to this day, I still do it. When I need something extra, I would, I'll wear something with some little prop, some little cosplay thing. I will still do it to this day because it's just that little something extra. And then, of course, you know, when I'm at the Javits Center, when I go to Comic-Con, I'm totally done up. I've been, uh... Golden Eagle, Golden Armor, Wonder Woman. I've been Gal's version of Wonder Woman, Catwoman, Harley Quinn, uh, Poison Ivy. I've been Firestar. That was the first Marvel uh, character I did. But I do it all the time. So if there's a reason not to, you know, there's no reason not to do it. I will find a reason to do some version. And I will wear something. Like I said, if it's a bracelet's underneath something, if it's a necklace, whatever it is, I will find a reason. Oh, okay. So what do you see in Wonder Woman as a character that you really like? Because you know how people inspire to be a character and they cosplay as that, like, that character to have some resemblance of that character. Uh, for me, Wonder Woman, I do Wonder Woman and Harley Quinn the most. Uh, for Wonder Woman in particular, she was the first character as a little girl that I saw that changed the whole dynamic. Originally, I had seen, you know, Batman and Robin. Then I had seen the Green Hornet. And Kato was a game changer for me as well. Because up to that point, I'd only seen Batman and Robin. And from a hero standpoint, Robin was always the sidekick. He was always getting captured. He needed Batman's help. He couldn't drive the car. Like, I didn't quite get Robin. But that was all I could relate to. And then I saw Kato. 
And I was like, wait a minute, this is different. He drives the car. He doesn't he doesn't need any cool gadgets. It's just him. And then Wonder Woman came on. And that was just, whoa, hold the phone. She's rescuing Steve Trevor. She's doing the fighting. She's no one's sidekick. This is this is different. And she was compassionate. She didn't have to prove anything. She was just there. It was just totally different. And from there, I just wanted to be like her. She was an ambassador. She was just different. There was no superhero like her. She could keep up with the boys, but she was still pretty. You know, as a little girl, you, that was everything you wanted to be. It's like you could, you could still hang out with the guys. You could still keep up with them from a strength standpoint, but she was smart. And yet she could dress really well. Like from a little girl, you're just like, she looks really cool. She wears great jewelry. You know, she's sparkly. It was everything that I wanted to be. And then I would just strive to be like. And she didn't always have to fight. She was smart. And then you'd have these episodes where she was kind to animals. You know, there was like one episode where there was like a gorilla. It was kind of ridiculous, but you know, the Nazis trained a gorilla to go find her. And instead of fighting the gorilla, she actually like used compassion. And I thought there was just so many things where she was nice to animals, but yet she could still fight. She could do all these crazy things that it was just, I want that. That's what I want to be. That's what I strive to be. And so from a young age, it just left an indelible mark on me. And I just, that's, that was it. So even in karate, going to martial arts, that's kind of what I always kept in the back of my head. And so you take her and then you take, you know, I, I learned more about Kato and Bruce Lee and kind of put them together. That's what I wanted. Well, so the representation in media is there other heroes that, or other characters you identify with in another way? Uh, Harley Quinn became somebody that I actually really enjoyed dressing up as, and I didn't think I would. It was somebody I'd always done Wonder Woman for a long time. I'd done every version of Wonder Woman, and then uh, somebody had mentioned they were like, "You'd make a really good Harley," and I was kind of like, you know, for me there was just so much toxicity around Harley. You know, and everybody kind of romanticized her relationship with Joker. I didn't quite get it. And I was like, why do you want to be like Harley and Joker? You know, I stayed away from her. And then I did wind up uh, doing a cosplay of Harley as Batman from Batman, the animated series, the Jester version. And there was such freedom in Harley. To whereas Wonder Woman, I had a lot of little girls coming up to me wanting to pose and take pictures with me. And... For me, when I cosplay, I try to stay in character and I remember you're representing that character. So uh, with Wonder Woman, I try to be polite. I'm a polite person to begin with, but you know, when you're that character, you want to make sure you're acting appropriately. With Harley, there's a certain freedom to her. You can kind of get away with whatever you want. And I loved that. It was relaxing. You could kind of just run around and do whatever. And so I found that to be, you kind of could unwind. And I really like that to where Wonder Woman, I'm in this tight corset. It's a little restricting as much as I love her, but it's, yeah, you're tight. Harley, you could just kind of let loose and do whatever. I could literally cosplay with people and take their props 
and pose with them and run away. And they were just like, yeah, that's Harley. Go have a good time. And I was surprised at what I could get away with as Harley. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I wound up having a really good time as Harley. And since then, I've done Harley a number of times. And I've had people who have drawn Harley, comic book creators, illustrators who have done Harley and have come up to me and said, that's one of the best Harleys I've seen. And I, I draw her a lot. Like Dan Jurgen stopped me at Galaxy Han in Richmond last year and tapped me on the shoulder. And he's like, that's one of the best Harleys I've ever seen. And I looked at him and it shocked me because I wasn't expecting it. And I turned around and saw him and I was like, wow, thank you. And I was like, that's a huge compliment. He's like, oh, I know. Coming from me, I know. And he just kind of laughed and walked away. And I was like, and my friend was like, who's that? I was like, it was Dan Jurgens. And he was like, yeah. And he looked, he's like, I've drawn her a lot. He's like, that's, that's great. Stephanie Williams, I, I saw and I was dressed as Harley. And she's like, your Harley is on point. And I was like, okay like you know when the creators are actually coming to you and writers and illustrators are stopping you and going that's a good harley you you've got it like you've got everything you're just like oh okay you know it's you kind of know that you've hit something so harley i've really enjoyed uh i've done catwoman a bunch of times i've enjoyed catwoman i tend to as much as i love wonder woman the villains i tend to hit the villains a little bit <laughs> yeah and guys, they call it the main star. I mean, I go there every year, so you gonna go back? Yes. Yeah, I'm actually GalaxyCon. I go to all of them. I'm, uh, I go with the pop-up bookshop, and I go around to just all of them. And I'm there with uh, my partner, C.R. Rice, who's another author, and we run the pop-up bookshop for indie authors. And I'm, I'm usually in cosplay. I'm usually as Harley one day, and then I pick another cosplay the other day. Ooh, okay. That's interesting to know that. Um... So, that's the superhero side of your cosplay. How about the fantasy? How did that get involved? What's like, right now you're a fae. Uh, it didn't, I didn't plan on it. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, I'm going to dress up as my characters. It was something that just kind of evolved while I was writing the Birth of the Fae series. I was, I was kind of into the, I was writing it. I was probably about halfway done with this with volume one and as I was doing it I kept thinking about what they wear can they fight in this can they not fight in it and I thought I'm gonna just do a test photo shoot of some of the characters and see if these outfits work and so I dressed up as I think five of the characters I dressed up as uh, Queen Aurora one of the healers uh, I did one of the actual, one of the Will-O-Wisps, like I tried wings on and, and did the whole thing with that. I did a steampunk version of a, a fae called Chrysiopeia, who comes in later actually in volume three. And a couple others, just to, to feel it out. And we did a photo shoot. And that kind of opened up this idea of cosplaying uh, as the fae. But I didn't really, I didn't think it would go anywhere. I did it, I had a great time. I, I figured out you know, what would work, what wouldn't work. And I just put it in the back of my head. I was like, okay, this may be down the line. This might be something I would do. And the pictures came out really well. I had uh, um, a graphic artist, uh, Mathis uh, artwork, who then kind of put the background in and, and did the finishing touches. And we just saved the pictures, thinking one day, maybe we'll use them. We weren't sure. I thought I would use them at the end as my author's notepad. And I did one character in particular, Lady Danius, who is guardian of the butterflies. And we put it on Instagram and it just caught fire. 
and people really started asking about what her story was and things like that. And from there, we, I kind of knew I had something and it sparked interest. And then my, uh, my second publisher, when I came to them and said, oh, I already have my covers done. The typeset was done. They had changed, changed it and said, you know, we're going to put you on the covers when you cosplayed as your characters. They had seen the pictures. And it was their decision to then put me on the cover and locked out of heaven when I uh, dressed as Mermaid Lady Serena. They put me on the cover. They got a great response. And from then on, I was on the cover for volume one of the series Cosplaying. And it just took off from there. Oh, okay. So with the, you being on the cover, did they start uh, giving you a photo shoot from them or you still had to do a photo shoot out of pocket? No, I still had to do it out of pocket. It was still me. I still had to make the costumes. Everything was done out of pocket for me. It was their idea. They didn't give me a choice. It was their idea, but I still had to fund everything. So we thought it was traditionally published. Because it's your own property, so you might as well have more pictures of the characters you do, because this is what you write. You want to embrace these characters to bring into a representation that people can see that gives a so that gives you but reality boost to the fantasy act. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I got to really feel things out uh, and go from there. So I was able to do that, and I did it with uh, the six books that are in volume one. So I did, I did all the shoots, did everything, and I was able to then write more details about some of this stuff. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time with it. Uh, I may, I'm still debating if I'll continue doing it for volume two because volume two moves into the 21st century. It's more urban fantasy paranormal, but uh, I'm considering it. I just don't know where I'm going to go yet with it. All right. If you were to do a book cover for urban fantasy, what is one thing you think you want to include but don't know how to do? Uh, the deal with book with volume two and doing this urban fantasy is that uh, the patient who inspired all of this, who inspired the whole series, I would like to include him, but he wants to keep his anonymity. So we are considering doing almost movie poster style covers where he will be shadowed, but you can still kind of make his profile out or something like that since he will be, he's the one who inspired Agent Graham. So we're trying to figure out how to do that. And the way we are thinking of doing it is it would be a hidden cover. So the dust jacket would be one. And then underneath, you would have this movie style kind of uh, cover hidden. And um, this way we can kind of play with Agent Graham and how you would see him kind of uh, in the style of the old Equalizer movie TV series. You would kind of see the CIA agent kind of in the shadows. That's where we're, we're going with it because that's a little more urban fantasy and paranormal. But uh, there's kind of some tricks and trade, you know, tricks of the trade we're kind of going with, and also the storyline of it we have to take into consideration. So, well, back and forth. Urban fantasy, you can do a shadow or a silhouette. You can create a really good uh, profile as a character in a way that. It's reminiscent of what the character will look like if they were cast a shadow. Or even more, a version of a character that might be not fully seen, but 
seen enough they get the picture yes that's we're going with something like that for at least for book one we can definitely pull that off for book two and three it becomes a little harder Mm -hmm. uh we would keep him in profile at all time but uh we're going back and forth on it we definitely have the covers figured out for uh the dust jacket and then like i said the underneath would probably be that so it would be a hidden cover to kind of also go with the whole idea of this clandestine cia agency that uh protects the protects us's the us's uh paranormal interests and protects from any um paranormal threats that's what this agency does and that's what volume two focuses on agent graham is actually the head of the succubus acquisition and research department so he is on the hunt for the gamma level succubus which is a fey human hybrid and that's what volume two follows you meet him at the end of volume one book six forgive us it jumps forward to him at the sotheby's auction house bidding on a book that gives him some hints on how to you know on the succubus and how to find them and such so then volume two picks up with his story so we you know we've got to kind of play with it a little bit but that's where it goes so the fae are always there it's just a different take on it gotcha so now we're in the books and the author side um how did you see yourself your authorship begin I never thought I'd be here. I didn't I didn't set out to become an author. I you know, that wasn't my goal. I was I went from being um a pro am martial artist competitor on the circuit for years upon years and then retiring after the world championships. I won my silver medal, I was done. That was finished. I went to nursing school. And from there I was in the CASPA circuit for physician assistant school and applying and I was applying to nurse practitioning programs and that's where I was headed. I thought I would be like a mid upper level provider. That was really what my goal was. I was finishing out all my prereqs, kind of doing that and working at a Lyme disease clinic, a small one in Westchester County, New York. I thought my life was planned out. I was going to, you know, like I said, be a mid level, upper level provider. I was going to go, you know, pump bases full of Restylane in Westchester County. And be done with life, you know. I thought it was all figured out. And then I met a patient my very first day. He started his treatment for Lyme the first day I started working at this clinic. And we just hit it off. And our journey just parallel together. And after about, I think he'd been there a year and a half, the doctor I worked for was out of her home. Her basement she'd converted into her offices and a drip room. She treated Lyme very aggressively. You dripped seven days a week IV. Christmas, New Year's didn't matter. That's what you did. I worked all the holidays and the weekends. That's what I was specifically brought on for. And then I was her nurse on Wednesdays and Fridays. So I got to know the patients really well. And after, I think, a year and a half, like I said, this patient in particular didn't want to do it anymore because he had uprooted his life from Pennsylvania. And so he was staying in Westchester and he had to obviously get back to work. He couldn't take any more time off. So the deal he struck with the doctor is that he would drive five hours on a Wednesday, drip for two, and drive home. 
then on Fridays, he would drive up Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, turn around and go home and keep repeating this. I knew it wasn't going to last that long, but so after a couple of weeks of it, he just said, Danny, I don't want to do it anymore. Like I'm done. I'm out. And he would backslide because he hadn't, hadn't killed off the bacteria. The infection was still pretty good. So in a conversation, I, he just said, look, keep me in the chair, entertain me, do something. And so I said, okay, tell me something interesting about yourself. And out of that conversation, it came up that he was recruited by the CIA out of college. And I'm like, how did this never come up? Like in the year and a half I've known you, how did you never tell me you were recruited by the CIA? And so we started making jokes and going down the whole conspiracy rabbit hole of everything, you know, Area 51, whatever. And so he told me he didn't take it due to, you know, whatever reasons. And so I was like, oh, we could have found out about this. We could have done that. And so I asked him, I said, well, you know where Lon comes from. And to this day, I don't know why I got on this subject with him. And he said, yeah, Plum Island, once again, conspiracy theory. And I said, no. Don't know why I said this. I said, no, the Fae. I wasn't reading any books about the Fae. No idea. I was on a vampire kick at that point. And he was like, well, who are the Fae? And so I just started making up a story. I don't know why. I just did. And so I just put him in the story. I was like, well, you're you're some CIA agent here to find out if the nurses really like the brains behind this whole Lyme operation. I was just making stuff up. And I just put him in. And I said that he was the CIA agent here to find out if the nurse was a fake human hybrid and just started telling him a story. And that's how the whole thing started. So every day that he would come in, I would just make another chapter up of the story. And it just started evolving. So when things would happen in the IV room, like sometimes the the doctor had this big black lab. The lab would walk in and I would say it was a dragon. And we would just start on this story. He was the one who was like, you need to go home and write this down. He's like, go home, write this down. You need to write a book. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to school. <laughs> like I got my life planned out and the universe had another idea. Eventually I started writing it down. And that's where the whole thing began. And here I am, almost eight books later, getting ready to, you know, for volume two. And that's where it all went. So you never know. And did you, like, uh, write anything when you were a child? Like, do you have any good writing then? Or did you didn't give me writing to now? Uh, my dad says that there is like some little essay when I was in second grade that that I wanted to write but then the following week I wrote down that I wanted to be Wonder Woman when I grew up so you know go figure uh there was nothing in particular that that I wanted to be an author there is I made a huge mistake when I was in seventh grade that I will take accountability for uh that stopped me from writing when I was in seventh grade the assignment was rewrite the ending to a classic book at this point in time, my parents will tell you, my father will say that I was a decent writer. I'm dyslexic. So reading, writing, specifically math, math specifically was not my strong point, but I could get lost in comics. So I enjoyed reading and writing comics. But the assignment was rewrite the end of a classic. I picked the Diary of Anne Frank. 
not a good thing to do. But once again, seventh grade, very long time ago, nobody canceled me. I rewrote the ending to the Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, in my ending, which once again, I thought it was a classic, she survived. And I rewrote this whole ending, thought it was so smart. I had her smuggled out on a train. I had her, I had a young Nazi soldier fall in love with her and smuggle her out to New York. And she, they marry, she falls, they fall in love, she marries. She's working in a diner. Her father meets her. It's the whole thing. And on his, you know, his last dying wishes to see his daughter and whatever. Well, my English teacher was Jewish. Turns out she was also my future aunt-in-law. He was my husband's aunt. This is how weird it is. Obviously didn't know any of this. Hates it. Calls my parents in and is like, she's committing blasphemy. Like, this is the worst thing this kid could do. And my parents are like, my mom's like, I thought it was kind of clever. Like, if, you know, she's like, if you read it, she's got a whole plan on how this girl gets out of the concentration. It, like, my mother was like, I think this is pretty smart for a seventh grader. And she's like, it's not. She needs to redo this assignment or else I'm failing her. Like, I'm giving her a zero. This is horrible what she does. I did not write after that. I never wrote a creative story. Nothing after that. I did not even, I didn't pick up, like, after that, I didn't take any creative writing classes in high school. Nothing. Because I was just so traumatized. I really thought what I did was smart, but I was grabbed, raked over the coals for what I did. So I didn't write anything after that. And the funny thing is, didn't know who it was until years later, I got engaged. We had the family over for Christmas Eve dinner. My former seventh grade English teacher walks in, takes one look at me, takes one look at my mother and goes, Diary of Anne Frank. And to that, they remembered it and it stopped. It did like give me pause writing again. So no, and I don't think this day, I don't think anybody's told her that I'm an author. So, no, I didn't. It made me stop for a little bit because I really thought I did something wrong. And I've gotten some pushback oh, in interviews from people who found out. A nonfiction story. Well, based on nonfiction, you basically transformed the ending in a way made uplifting. I like to think uh, alternative history. She didn't have happy ending. So as an author, when you rewrote it, you rewrote it for a ending that you sought to be a better ending. And that was the basic kid. That's what you do. If I was a teacher, if I was biased or anything, I would get another teacher the criteria who maybe wasn't as biased, get you a grade. Bum bum review the grade and see if it was agreeable. And then we'll just give you the grade and move on. I, I, could, I could see where maybe I deserve, like, hey, we need to sit down and talk about this, like a sensitivity. But at the time, as a kid, you, I just wanted to give her a happy ending. But I was just told, take a classic. So that, to me, was a classic. And so, you know, but I was a kid. What the heck? I mean, you're 10 years old. What do you know in seventh grade? Like, you know, that's what I did. But yeah, it was not content on it. so oh, yeah if Roy thought the story wasn't agreeable because they identified a different 
the they identify that that ending as non-changeable, but there was no grounds for which story you couldn't use or anything like that. No, it was just a classic. And like I said, I remember telling my mother and my father what I was doing, and they were just like, they thought it was just so smart that I figured out like how to get her. They were just like, that's a jailbreak. Like they were just like, how did you figure this out? They were more impressed with the creative side that they weren't even thinking like, oh, kid, this could. But it, it stopped me from writing for a while because I was really like, I did something bad. Like, it, it from a, you know from that standpoint, it was. You know, I think as a kid. Uh, the teacher took it out on you because how she felt more than she needed to, and. Unfortunately, how someone reacting, she chose to step back and been on a neutral tone. So I'm not sure if I want to accept it. If you can redo it, let me know. And then I will give you a chance to fight for it if you thought that what you did was right. And like, okay, then I'll get another teacher to grade it, and that's how we'll resolve it. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I don't know if I can personally grade it with the intent of not being biased. I'm gonna give it to another teacher. I'm gonna accept their grade on the criteria. I'm gonna give my rubric. They do it. There will be another English teacher. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been fair. But you know, yeah, to this day, can't say what if. Or say what someone else would have done because they reacted in a way that they reacted in a way that could get a principal involved. So I don't know. Yeah, but after that, now I didn't really, I didn't really write much. Uh, didn't do anything. It was just, just kind of hanging out. So when I did, when I did birth of the Fae, I didn't know really how to write. Everything was handwritten. I, I've done. All the books have been handwritten first, and that's still how I write today. Uh, I've even volume two was handwritten first and then transcribed uh, to the computer. But everything's been handwritten. Even the novellas that weren't planned, I handwrite first and then go to the computer. So the patterns that I've developed have just been fly by the seat of my pants. There's no outline. There's none of that. Okay. So, when you are transcribing chapters at hand, what was your first thought when you were putting on paper? I can't tell you there's an actual thought because it's not like I sit there and go, oh, chapter one. It's more just whatever I remembered, like when I would come back from telling my patient, that's what I would do. And then the story would just flow. I tend to write like I'm watching a movie. And so whatever's in my head and I'm seeing is what I'm writing. And if I'm bored by it, then I replay it again until it's interesting. Because if I'm bored, I feel like then the reader's going to be bored. So I just kind of keep going and rolling with it. I don't sit there and think too hard on it because then I overthink. The only things I tend to plan out are fight scenes. My fight scenes, those are where... The tripod gets set up, we go outside, the camera, you know, the phone, iPhone is set up, and we record. That gets crazy. 
Bali is so cool because you also have that martial arts background, so you can actually plan the choreography in a way to tell the story. Yes, that I'm nutty about. Like, that I get OCD crazy about because I don't know what point of view I'm going to write it from. Am I writing it from the attackers? The one who's being attacked? I don't know. So what I'll do is I will plan the scene out because I never do sweeping battle scenes. I don't know how to write those. Like, I leave that to Tolkien. You know, if he wants to do a thousand orcs, great. I don't know what a thousand orcs look like. I don't know how a thousand orcs fight. I don't ride horseback. I can't tell you that. But I know four people fighting. I've done group. Uh, I've done tag team sparring. I've done three on one. I know what that looks like. I can I can do that. So when I fight and when I do a, a choreo when I do a choreographed scene, I will set the camera up and I know okay, it's going to be one attacker. I've got a broadsword or I don't. I figure that out and then I will set it up to say this is going to be from the attacker's point of view and the camera's behind me. I'm the attacker. And then I'll see it. So when I write it, then I'll do it from who's being attacked because I want to figure out where where's the reader going to enjoy this more. Depending on the moves, they may enjoy it more from the person who's being attacked. Depending on what I'm doing, they might like that better. Sometimes they like it more from the other side. So I'm going to figure this out and then write it and see how it looks. And I've had my dog stand in before. My husband's come out. I've had the dogs and he's like, I don't even want to know what's happening. He's like, forget it. And he backs out. I've had him stand in before. You know, it depends on who I've got. And I just kind of figure how I'm going. And sometimes I'll go in with one plan and I come out with a totally different plan. It's one way. And then I'm like, none of that works. It's forget it. Bad idea. Throw it all out. Start all over. Uh, I'll go in thinking, oh, I'm going to throw this sidekick. I'm going to land here. And then I'm like, none of that is working. It's going to have to be this. Based on height. Based on whatever. Uh, if I'm throwing any I try not to throw too much magic in there like elemental stuff because it, it gets it gets too muddied I want it to just be what it is I think I've learned that from watching too many superhero movies where it's just a fist a cowl a cape going and you're like what is happening here like let's just do a fight scene a good fight scene like where you're just you got an elbow smashing across the jaw across the elbow you know the chin whatever it is and how far are they going to go back and then they're coming up grabbing the head and just smashing it into the knee what is that going to really be like that bone crunching sound whatever you're going to hear or are you not going to hear anything because you have too much adrenaline going through you don't hear anything you don't hear the other guys you know bone crunch that's not what you're just focused on you you're only hearing your breathing unless you're being attacked you know so that's where I like to kind of go through and figure it out. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I tend to have a high imagination as a kid. So I would actually plan out monologue. I would do a fight scene, do basic characters. I would do like a parallel story. I would name the attack move. I would, like, I think I had Ice King. I had one guy who was very good at martial arts, but then he also had a tag team robot that would also fight had more durability and then had like the power of steel as like super durability and I would just and then arrange these different fights with these characters 
and I would like draw out like 30 minutes redoing the action mm-hmm. with the exactly visualizing what it'll look like in the battle. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. was kind of cool. And I still, you know, so so the age, I'm not like 15 still doing it, but I'm not doing it as much now because I feel like I had so much fun doing it that I told me she should write it down. I was like, why? I mean, it was my fun. I had that imagination. It was better for me not to write it down for the simple fact. It would take the fun away from it. Yes. And actually fun I actually had doing. Mm-hmm. And I would You don't want to make it a chore. I think my favorite was dodgeball tournament. I would have all these different characters trying to throw a dodgeball and my favorite was octopus that was just at all the tentacles throwing all these dodgeballs. I don't know where that came from, but it just came in at fit. I it's so funny you say that because uh in my novella Fire Ice Acid and Heart, uh I have a a dragon tournament and that's kind of what the tournament is like. I call it a a combination of dodgeball and a martial art tournament put together. And that's really what it is. It, it's very similar. So I I understand that. The dragons and their riders are fighting to get on a, um, an elite force. And the tournament is just that. It's dodgeball and a martial art tournament put together. And that was a lot of fun to write. I fully understand the monologue trying to play out the action scene mm-hmm. in a way. I would, I would already get like super into it I was just sweating <laughs> so I just guess yes. I was like why are you making on this story I was like, no I'm not doing anything at all yeah you're just yep when I did um, when I did the novella Fire Ice I actually bought uh, Dragon because up to that point I the dragons had been fighting in the air in a lot of the tournament in a lot of the books so that was one thing but in this one they're fighting and there's a boundary line and they're trying to protect an egg and there's plasma balls. So I bought dragon action figures and I had like little tinfoil balls to act as the plasma balls. And, you know, my husband would come in and I'd be fighting like, you know, these action figures. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, I'm just trying to figure this out because I can figure out what they were doing. But then I'm trying to figure out what the dragons and I've got them fighting with the riders because they have to be in sync. And it's like a whole thing. And then I'm, I'm doing things where like I have a scorpion kick that I used to do where I, I bring my leg over my head oh, and hit. There you go. Um, and I'm doing that. And I have it set where the dragon heats up the plasma balls. And then she comes over and hits the ball and sends it over the line. And I'm doing this. And I'm sitting here and my husband walks in and I'm like, I'm bent over with my leg up and I'm trying to throw at the same time a tinfoil ball up. And he's like, what is happening? And I'm like, nothing. I'm like, I'm like, just stop, stop. I was like, don't say a word. I'm trying to figure this out. And he's like, he's like, where's the tinfoil? I'm like, I'll buy more tomorrow because I've used them all up making them because I'm trying to figure out the exact size. So I can say, is it a snowball? Is it a boulder? what would it be and I'm figuring this out and then I'm trying to do the scorpion kick and I'm missing left and right I mean I, I'm, I don't you know and then I'm trying to figure out should the ball hover 
and he's just like never mind never mind and he just backs out slowly and he closes the door and i can hear him being like she's freaking crazy freaking crazy he's like what and i hear him talking to the dogs and he's like mama bear's just nuts he's like just don't go in the room just leave her alone and you just hear me and you hear me curse out the storm because i'm missing and something's falling and something got, like i said i'm knocking off like my headpiece like something's falling in there and you can hear it and you just hear me go and i'm trying again and then eventually kind of figured out so i wound up putting it in the book and i put my rehearsal like in the book where one of the fae is practicing it and she's missing because that's exactly what I did. So I'm always trying things, but that that book, that novella took me forever to write just for the fight scene because I could do them, but making a dragon do it, I, I didn't know how exactly I was going to make a dragon fight. Well, um, understanding how a dragon will fight, you need to understand the size, the type of flight pattern, also, the signature attack rooms like fire breath, the claws, the tail. I had done all of that. I had done all. I worked with a mechanical engineer, a physics professor, a veterinarian. I had built my dragons from the digestive system out. So I had fire, ice, and acid. So I had done all this work, but then I didn't want my dragons to do nothing but breathe their fire, ice, or acid. So then I was like, okay. So I've got like my my fire um, breathers have almost like a fire billow and they've got their two gas bladders and it comes through a fistula and I've got flint rock on the back of their teeth. I had it all, like I got them down. But I'm like, okay, but it takes this long for the gas bladders to refill. So they always work in tandem with um, an acid or an ice breather. So they can refill on the other, but now they're fighting against each other. Now the story changes a little bit, and who's got the sickle tail? But they've got armor, and the armor is cued to the armor of their rider, and you're protecting an egg. So if the rider gets hit, or you get hit, or the dragon gets hit, the egg opens a little bit, and you don't want a forced hatching. So you got a boundary line. It was like all these things I'm thinking, and my dragons are not the size of 747s. They can only fit one to two fed. They're more like giraffes. They've got hollow bones. They do they don't take off like Superman. They need a leap to glide. So all this is planned out, but before this book it had been planned out, I'd never planned on writing this novella. So there was never a tournament in my mind. And now I've got a tournament and I'm sitting here going, I had planned the shot for this. The acid breathers have two types of at like now I'm going, oh god, I've got a plan on them fighting. And I have armor on them, and it was just like, okay, I've got to sit and like really think of they're not fighting in the air anymore. Because up to this point, all their battles, they had been in the air, and I had all these beautiful, you know, ballet battles, and it was great. But now they're on the ground, and there's a boundary line. What do I do? So that's where like the dodgeball and the plasma balls came in. And it was just very different to kind of figure this all out. It was a lot of fun, but it took me much longer. And I had to, up to this point, I thought I knew my dragons really, really well. This gave me a whole new appreciation for my dragons and my rider, riders. Because now I really had to think about them and how they all work. And I have a scene where uh, one of the main uh, acid vessels 
gets bit and broken and how it sprays out. And so it was all these things that I was like, I really had to understand the dragon anatomy. And I was like, new understanding because the one thing when I wrote these books and I just, and I knew I was going to have dragons because dragons are fantasy vernacular. You got to have dragons. They were not going to be magical. I hate that. That was one of my pet peeves. When there's a dragon, it's like, he just breathes fire. Why? Because he's a dragon. Why does he breathe fire? Like, I, I couldn't have that. I wanted them to, if I was ever on Mythbusters, I wanted it to be plausible. I don't have to be confirmed, but plausible. So I worked really hard on that. And now I had to, like, back it up. So it was it was a lot more work. Gotcha. Uh, I think the two character fights that I had that were really reminiscent of a big scale battle was uh, I had one person being the Ice King and one paladin had the transformation that transformed to Storm. He would go into like a tornado, a hurricane, a hyper hurricane. I did the Ice King with like a blizzard, so they were. And he would be like a giant ice statue find the tornado. And it was a full drawn out uh, action scene. There were different power-ups in the fight. And if one took advantage, they wanted another power-up. And then I actually had uh, a tie with them because of the fact... I think the bigger storm that he got access to was a black hole equivalent. And he did so much blizzard and ice to the point... Where it just turned like an entire atmosphere of ice with plants. So like a, it got to a stage of scaling that I didn't really think I would get to. So that's what that battle. And then the second two characters I had was this like uh, giant, this like up giant that but held like cosmos and like Mother Nature and Sandman. Them being protective of Mother Nature and have the power. While the person I actually had fighting him had this power to like have a ball in his hand, it will rotate, but it can duplicate any power of Moon to combat the giant. But I also would think about these moons on a giant level scale to be actually take down the giant. And the giant would do different things and keep getting back up and that type of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Off the fall internet, I had interconnected characters. Some were standing alone, but sometimes I'll have other characters fight. Like I reversed it for the giant with Sandman find the giant. However, Sandman I put as a global uh scale kind of thing and also gave mm-hmm. connections to Mother Nature. Oh, very cool. Okay. I like the connections. Um, yeah. It was interesting how I did it. Because I think one of his giant uh, sets was really an uh, X-missile. He would, like, cross his arms in an X and then come down super fast and hit you with it. it <laughs> so a lot of the okay. things I also have were also based on Pokemon, too. So... I do a lot of Pokemon moves. I will actually like use those as the name and the match on a greater scale. Okay, that's where you gotta grab your ma- you know your inspiration from wherever you can. I mean, that's 
a lot of my inspiration comes from my martial art moves. You know, uh, especially with the elemental magic that I use for it. You know, um, I know when I do with the elements, you know, obviously air, I take a lot of wushu moves. Water, I take tai chi. Uh, Earth is bagua. Uh, You know, so it kind of depends on, on where you go with it. But I'll pull from different styles. Yep. And those moves will work. That was also a show that I used to watch with Chinese martial arts, um, with different elements. And you can easily identify different elements in the fighting based off different fighting styles being mm-hmm. the signature. So I had, I know a show that did that really well, but you know, I had fun with it. I don't do it anymore. But I do, I can look back on it. It's like, I I did this. I did it for myself. Yeah. And I don't really need to write it down because it's in my memory belt. Right. That's the best part. If it was fun for you, you don't want to make it a chore. When it becomes a chore, well, I don't want to not imagine what I actually did and try to rewrite what the actual sequences of events were. There's just, I don't remember all of it. So it's not going to be as full of a picture when I once did it to now kind of transcribe it. It's too it's too late. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, it's too much. I mean when I do it now, it's like I said, I could see the scene in my head and I work backwards and go and I use a lot of music. Music is a big uh influence. It helps with uh, the emotions of the scene and I, I work with that uh, I can't I don't write in silence anybody who can do that kudos to them I can't I need a full soundtrack I need noise I can't I can't do it in just dead silence well, I can write in dead silence I can read in dead silence uh, sometimes I like to have like TV in the background or like say I'm uploading the podcast I'm like let me have the TV in the background uploaded, but have a program in the background keeping me on track. Because mm-hmm. if I do it with no silence, I might take even longer and not be as fast to do it. I need, I need some noise. Probably because the voices in my head are just so loud with my characters. I need something to, to keep me. You want your with... equilibrium balance. Yeah, I need something. I can't silence i can i can go off on too many tracks so i i just need something and when it comes to music each book has its own soundtrack that i always you know i make one on spotify that kind of goes through the emotional journey of the book so i always have that and that tells the story in and of itself and i always you know uh upload that on instagram for the readers and i've had readers go back and and use it and they're like yep that that is that's book right there like there there it is and they can kind of identify which characters and some of my characters have their own song in my head and i've said you know this is so-and-so's song uh for volume two there are modern songs i've actually written the lyrics within the book because it gives you a hint on what's happening you know there's um there's certain songs that are always playing in the background whether it's the elevator version the jazz version whatever to give you a hint of something that's coming or to let you know you can't trust this character 
there's a reason why sabotage is constantly playing when this agent walks in the room like pay attention it's always on when cooper walks into graham's office sabotage is constantly playing that's your hint this guy can't be trusted he, he's playing a bigger role than you think or uh you know ricky nelson's traveling man is when you first meet graham that's the first song that's playing in his car and if you listen to the word there's a hidden meaning in the song you know he's got a girl in every port well this man has 36 succubi in an underground lab you know it's like there's there's these little double entendres in all the songs little hidden meanings for a lot of these characters so for volume two i use a lot of music within the book to kind of give you a hint okay so you are basically making a rhythm soundtrack but in wood yes i'm i'm letting you know for volume two that you gotta like pay attention to what's happening because it, it's giving you a hint it's like a screenplay with everything the lighting the sound yep yeah i'm trying to make it an all-encompassing experience because for me, volume two is setting the stage for the rest of the series. That's the main, like if you never read volume one, you you can jump in on volume two, no problem. But that's the one you gotta read in order to take it for the rest of the series. That's the one. Because this is setting up everything that happens from this point on. So I wanna make it that moment of, I've gotta get in and really take the readers to that next level. So I'm, I'm using music within the story so that if you download the Spotify playlist and you're listening to it as you read, it'll tell you exactly what's happening. I have songs, like I said, from Ricky Nelson to uh, Chris Isaac. I have, you know, The Killers. It's all different genres, all different music. And the characters actually talk about who they listen to. You know, there's an argument between uh, Cooper and Graham about Beyonce and, you know, he's trying to, like, he comes in and Sabotage is playing and he turns, Cooper turns it off. And they have this whole discussion about music. And it kind of tells you a lot about the two characters right there. And, you know, who's following what, who's doing what. So it's it's a different way to kind of get into the characters and get into the story. All right. Because I know with my writing journey, it's been like interesting because when I make essays when I was a child in my school, I would wood vomit on a lot of stuff. I actually had to condense my writing because it sometimes there was too much words on the sentence that didn't flow right. So I had to go back, re edit it, the entire thing, make it concise. You know, maybe shorter was better, maybe longer is here, but. Do it in a way where they punctually correct all that stuff. So I, my mom was a teacher, so I took an upscale on the editing process, and then I transferred that process to my blogging. I wrote about 150 different blogs. I first took paraphrasing of articles, did it as a blog. Then I got into my original content, like my series content, like different shape eyes or Naruto eyes. I also did like elementals, fire wielders, and the different shows, write an expert about them. Then I actually did like a bleach wiki style and a, um, what's the other one? Naruto? Yeah, I did 
another Bleach, uh, Bleach of the World of Bleach, and then of another original content. But I have like serious content out there. Mm-hmm. It was kind of cool. And that's kind of where this podcast is transformed into from that old blogging. I don't do the blogging more, but I would spend a lot of time finding these articles, publishing it, writing it, editing it. And then sometimes I even made a picture with my original content. And then I'll upload these different platforms. Some of all like Pinterest, Flickr, all of that was only picture. So I took a screenshot of the entire textbook that I wrote. And sometimes it was in cloud storage. Sometimes it was in my notes. Sometimes it was my uh, Microsoft Word. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a lot of writing just because of that. And I loved it. And that's kind of how my writing took on. If someone wanted me to do uh, news or a blog article right now, I would do it straight. That's my format. That's that's how I write. I didn't have it so much. That's my format. And essays is also my format. I like it. I like short length writing pretty much. That's good that you know. You know that's part of it is you have to know what your lane is, what you do well, and, and stick with it. I am. There's certain things I know I can do. You know, I I had only recently jumped into the romanticy genre with uh, my novella, Danius and Jaden, uh, The Heart of War, Danius and Jaden. That comes out June 1st. That was my first jump into romanticy. My books, the first volume, volume one of Birth of the Fate, doesn't really have any romantic storylines. I stayed away. I'm more political intrigue, action, mystery in the fantasy realm. Uh, my books are not very long. They're anywhere from 250 pages. That's about my average length. I'm not Tolkien, where I'm writing three 500-page books. I'm I'm kind of your gateway drug into the fantasy realm. Um, smaller. I like those books. Those shorter books are actually sometimes better. I remember the Everlost trilogy. I read that. It was like 300 pages. But I read every book in that, and I loved it. So, Yeah, I try to, you know, like, here's one. Um, Like, my final book in volume one forgive us it's only you know it's not huge it was and i have questions it's 224 pages it's oh, okay. not you know my feeling was always make it a beach read uh something that you know you can pick up you can take on a plane and maybe finish it in both ways you know that was that was my feeling and i also wanted to be cognizant of people's time money that kind of thing but i'm not i was not a romantic driven author uh danny st jaden was my first time going romanticy and it's a novella still it's 150 pages about but that was the first romantic driven one and even that one it more goes into the idea of grief love lost what do you do when you lose somebody you love and then you have to re-examine that loss when you learn something new about them and how do you kind of process that and how do you get out of it to whereas volume two uh birth of the you know birth of a succubus is uh that volume it's there is a romantic plot but still there's intrigue mystery it's urban fantasy paranormal and the romance aspect of it is still not the full plot that doesn't really come until book two 
and it's not the full thing. I'm not somebody who's going to go and write a sweet romance. That's not who I am. I don't do that well, so I'm not going to try to shoehorn it in. That's not my thing. Like I know what I'm, I'm good at. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a really good fight scene. I'm gonna throw a cliffhanger. I love cliffhangers. <laughs> I I love that comes from that Castlevania heroes kind of thing. Like I loved the first two seasons of Heroes. In the rest, but I loved the first two seasons of the show Heroes. I love the fact that every time an episode ended. You wrapped up a little mystery and then they left you with a huge one and you were like, what the hell is going on on this show? I loved that. That was great. Um, watching Castlevania Noctura. Um, I watched it with my husband and when they got to the last episode, I looked at him I went, that's it? What the hell? And I was yelling and he went, Can you do that. And he starts laughing. He goes, that's your book. And he's hysterical. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you do that to your readers. She goes, every one of your books ends just like that. He goes, all of a sudden, something major happens, the screen goes black. And he was hysterical because I was cursing out the show. I'm like, <laughs> what did they do? What the hell? That's how, now we got to wait till next year. And I'm yelling and he's just, he's laughing because he goes, that's every one of your books. Your books all end like that. And I'm going, oh, wait, you do that. Uh, and I'm laughing. I'm like, oh yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, that is me. But that, and I love that. I want people to end every chapter going, what the, did she? And then they get to the next one. And by the time they get to the end of the book, they're like, holy crap, I got to wait for the next one. But I never make you wait a long time. The longest you'll wait is a year. Sometimes I can pop it out in six months. I never George R.R. R. Martin. Ever. Like, you're never waiting 10 years. It's a year. But I do love a cliffhanger. And some people get mad at me because they're like, you always leave me on a cliffhanger. But to me, that's fun. Because that's like TV. You got to wait till next season. Yeah, one I, I will always tie up certain loose ends. I will never leave you completely hanging where you're like, but what about this? I will tie him up. I will give you a nice little neat package of the mysteries you were waiting for, and then I'm going to start a new mystery. But that's like my love of TV. That's what happened. So, I, you know, that's kind of how I write. And I did it with volume one. I tied up most of them. And then I was like, okay, guys, it's done. And then I delivered Danius and Jaden, or will be delivering it, where I kind of give you another view and tie up some more loose ends. And then I might leave you with a, one other, just hanging out there. And I'm like, I'll see you in volume two. And that's kind of where I go with things, where I'm just like, if you have some more questions, you can always reach out to me on Instagram, and maybe I'll give you a hint on what's going on. Maybe I won't. But there's always kind of something, and I think it's it's a little more fun because I am accessible. That if somebody's got a real question, and I've had people come to me at like Galaxy God and be like, I read this. Does this mean this? And sometimes I'm like, okay, you caught me. Yeah, it does mean that. Like, I'll give you, you know, if, if you read into it and you catch it, I'm going to admit to it. I've had, like I said, I've had people figure something out, and I'm like, yep, you're right. And like, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. I'm just going to tell you you're right. I'm not going to give you the whole thing away, but good catch. I'll, I'll admit it. Like I said, I'm not going to admit all of it, but I'll admit it. Okay. Well, yeah, so wrap this up for a close. You leave your audience on a cliffhanger, and then you tell them you're right if they catch you. Yeah, if okay. they catch me. Okay. Was there anything you want to tell the audience about your cosplay, author and model, 
stages through your book publishing and dressing up? Um, I think just that anybody can do it. Everybody can have fun. All I'm trying to do is bring a little sparkle into the world. And when I do cosplay, even as my fake characters, my attitude is I'm trying to stand behind my work. So if I'm dressing up like this, I'm trying to let the world know that I stand behind it. It's got to be good if I'm willing to walk around with butterfly wings on my head or a crown or a lot of sparkle. You can always use a little sparkle sparkle and a little fey into the, in the world. So I might as well get lost in it with everybody else. I'm just the tour guide. I'm the custodian of these stories. Please come into the world. I would love to have you. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun here. There's some political intrigue. There's some darkness. There's some light. There's some beauty. And then there's some not so pretty things, but we all learn a little bit of it. And so I'm happy to have anybody in the Fey realm. And as Danielle takes the many different, the roles of different hats, not only does she fights some plans her own choreography of the fight scene, she writes it, the inspiration, talking with it, and I think she would do really well at talkism. I think that's be one thing that she'd be good at. And one thing is, she embraces the character. So if you have a character you love, embrace it for whatever it is. And if you want to cosplay as it, Go ahead. And she still as the model, not for choreography, but also the model for actual comes. So where can they find you? Again? You can find me on Instagram at birthofthefay underscore novel, or you can go to the website at birthofthefay.com. All right, well, this concludes this episode of Cosplay Author and Model. Thank you for being here, Danielle. It was lots of fun. And now I got to see all these different sides to you. That didn't know I keep smiling on in your book. Thank you very much. Everybody can find out Danius and Jaden at the Heart of War on Amazon for pre order. It comes out June 1st. All right. Thank you for your time. Bye, guys. This concludes another episode of MC Anime Podcast. MC Anime Podcast is available on podcast directories like Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. We also have our website at mcanimepodcast.com. If you want to directly support us, then follow Patreon blog MC Anime. Finally, if you want services for hire, then we're available on Fiverr for audio and video production, graphic design, idea consulting, and blog and article writing. 